First Corinthians chapter 14 today. First Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, it could be very tempting to uh, skip chapter 14 in preaching through a series like this. The chapter 13 is so beautiful. It's a the great chapter on love. Everybody, everybody loves it. It's a great chapter. Wonderful insights there. Chapter 15 is the greatest chapter in all the Bible on the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the believer. And so it's, it's loved by everybody as well. Chapter 14 is a whole different piece of work. So why did the Lord decide to go from chapter 13 on love and then uh, later chapter 15 on resurrection and sandwich in between that uh, a ch whole chapter correcting these people in the misuse of tongues? Why would he do that? And I think it's because they were sidetracked and confused by the whole purpose of why they were Christians and what the church was all about, how easy that is to happen. I read that in California there's a factory that invented the process whereby they take these carrots and cut them down to those little rounded things that you find in your relish trays and so forth, and some of you eat them like candy. And there's a factory that somebody invented how to do that. And, and so they make those little rounded things. That's their bread and butter. That's what they make their living on. But they also use all the byproducts. Every little piece of scrap it goes into something. Probably something you're eating somewhere else. Who knows? But they don't waste a thing. But they never forget that they're there to make little round carrots. And that's what they're all about. It's very easy to get sidetracked with the byproducts of anything. And that's true in the church. It's true in the Christian life. It's easy to be sidetracked by good things, uh, wonderful things, and mediocre things, but, but the byproducts can take over the ministry of a life, the ministry of a church. And this church at Corinth was one of those byproduct churches. They were chasing all the wrong things. They were pursuing all the wrong things. Uh, and, and Paul brings them back. He says they were selfish. They were self-centered. They were focused on themselves. Paul said throughout the book, he's been pointing that out. Chapter 13 says, look, you should be going after love, not all these other things. Chapter 15 says, wait a minute, you don't understand the resurrection and what that means to your Christian life. Instead, in chapter 14, he is saying, look, you are sidetracked by something that is not that important. You need to keep the main thing the main thing, and you're not doing that. And he says, so he's going to go back and talk to them about something that was the byproduct. Not, it was nothing particularly wrong, but what they were doing was wrong. And he's going to correct them. So keep in mind as we look at chapter 14 in the next few uh, sessions that uh, we are looking at a, a, a sermon or a section totally wrapped around correction. Everything here is correction. And if you keep that in mind, it would be a big help in your understanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, as he's talking about tongues. Tongues is the subject all the way through chapter 14. And as we'll look at it, we'll find some interesting things. First of all, we find it, he's correcting them. Secondly, we find that this is the only place in the New Testament that talks about the use of tongues, and that is in a form of correction. It's not mentioned after, after uh, this chapter and anywhere else in any of the epistles. This is one of the earlier epistles. Never mentioned again. It's quite odd, is it not, that in some circles that uh, the worship, the corporate worship of the church is wrapped around things such as tongues, uh, and private devotion as well is often wrapped around something like tongues in which the scriptures do not talk about that at all and never, never give us any indication whatsoever that worship should be wrapped around tongues either privately or publicly. And yet some have so misunderstood this chapter that uh, just like the Corinthians had understood the material that they have missed the whole point. And so we're going to look at that today. 
and uh, study uh, some of these concerns. We're going to start with two concerns uh, that we'll just have take time to look at today. But before that, we're going to do something kind of unusual for a message, for, at least for me. And that is I'm going to talk about the history of, of something. I'm going to, it, it, sermons are not lectures. Uh, that's why I don't use PowerPoints. Some people do. I don't have a problem with that. This, but this is not a lecture. Uh, this is a, uh, a message from God's Word. But I'm going to give about half this sermon, or close to it, in a lecture format of giving the background of the, of the modern tongues movement, the charismatic movement, because without that understanding, you will not understand the importance of 1 Corinthians 14 in our immediate context. And so I, this is very brief. I've written a booklet on it, and we have dealt with it before. But let me give you a brief overview of the history of tongues. And so this will not be in Scripture. We'll get to there in just a few moments. We'll start with ancient tongues. Uh, in ancient tongues, back in the, before even the Scripture's time, we find the first recorded incident anywhere of tongues was in Egypt about a thousand years before Christ. And we find there an Egyptian man said that he was worshiping his God and he broke out in a static speech and that is the first recorded message in tongues we've ever heard. Plato said in his time several hundred years before Christ that, that tongues were spoken at, at that time in various places. Of course Plato was, was a Greek scholar, a philosopher, he was not a believer. After Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues occasionally took place among Christians for specific purposes. We're going to be talking about those purposes. But God said they are a sign. And that's back in chapter 14, uh, verse 22 on down. He gives the only place in all the Bible that tells us why tongues existed. They had a purpose. They were a sign. And we will deal with that in great detail in a few weeks to show you what that is. But they had a specific purpose, and even in the New Testament, no one spoke in tongues after 56 AD. That was the last time tongues that we know of was spoken, at least the last time it was recorded. Occurrence prior to the 20th century is interesting. At the close of the New Testament, going up to the 1900s, and throughout church history, there were a few scattered reports of tongue speaking. Pretty much it was total silence. But there were different pockets of people that did speak in tongues. They were almost all heretics. For example, the Montanists, one of the early heretic group in the second century. The Gentilists in the 1700s. The Shakers in the 1700s. The Irvinites in the 1800s. The Mormons in the 1800s. All spoke in tongues. And they're all heretical cults. But there, uh, there were some individuals who seemed to throughout that time are very, very, very silent on that. The Orthodox churches, uh, just, it just wasn't there. But that all changed on January 1, uh, 1901. So we now move to the tongues of the 20th century. Uh, it, this backs up a little bit before the 1900s to the holiness movement in the 1800s. There was a movement of pious Christians who truly loved the Lord but were quite, somewhat mystical in their approach. Uh, these, uh, these Christians uh, developed uh, certain theologies and ultimately uh, founded the church in 1886, the Church of God, which was based, what made them different than anybody else is they were looking for uh, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that would come and give them supernatural power and gifts and holiness. And so they were constantly chasing this second uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we've already talked about earlier 
when we looked in chapter 12, there is no such thing in the Bible as a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that became their, 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 their signature. That's what they did. And so everybody was thinking that if you got this second baptism, you would become more spiritual. You would, be, you would become uh, somewhat, somewhat uh, more gifted or some sort. But it wasn't until 1901 when a man named Charles Parham, a, pa- a pastor, had a group of students that he was training at a co- little college called Bethel Bible College. And they believed that the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues. Nobody had ever heard anybody speak in tongues, but they believed that it, that was the case. And so they, they were praying for that and teaching it and looking into it. On uh, New Year's Eve, 19, uh, going into 1901, uh, they were praying all night long for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and for the, for the gift of tongues. Somewhere in, the, in that night, a young lady began to speak in tongues and claimed she had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's, this has been called the birthday of Pentecostalism, uh, January 1, 1901. But Pentecostalism did not spread from, from uh, Texas. It spread from California like all good things do. Uh, a black student of, uh, of Parham's by the name of W.J. J. Seymour took this message to California, preached it in a church in Los Angeles, and uh, people began to speak in tongues. Uh, so many people got so excited about that they had to move down the street and rent a, a hall or, or quarters known as uh, Azusa Street Mission. And they began to have revival meetings day and night for years at the Azusa Street Mission. And while they were there, people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people came over the time. People from all over the globe heard about this, came to catch the Spirit and take home tongue speaking to their, to their places and to their countries. And uh, that, that is what was going on there. So Azusa Street Mission became the Mecca of Pentecostalism. After a couple of decades, though, the movement began to decline up until World War II. Uh, up until then, uh, the Pentecostal movement stayed to itself. The, those that were Pentecostals stayed in their own circles pretty much. The rest of the church looked down upon Pentecostals. They considered them holy, holy rollers, what they were called. And they were, uh, were lower-class people for the most part, and educated people. They stayed in their circles. The rest of the church kind of looked the other way at them. And uh, kind of like we, we would do today with the snake handlers down in the Appalachia Mountains. You all know about them. There's about six that are left. Uh, that are, are, are doing that. But everybody knows about that, and some people think, that's, well, that's fundamentalism or something. Uh, let me tell you what, that's not, and we don't think it is, and the church doesn't agree with that. But, uh, but you hear about it, so you look at that and say, yeah, those are, they may be Christians, but they're kind of deluded, but that's okay, they're good people, I'm sure. So that's how the church saw Pentecostalism before World War II. Uh, these, were, these were kind-hearted people, they loved the Lord, but they were confused. That began to change after World War II with Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts and his uh, set-up man, Demas Sakarian, decided that they were not penetrating a society very well, and something had to change. The churches were guarding against this teaching, and they wouldn't let it into their church. And so they had to do something else. So, so Oral Roberts came up with a plan. Let's, we'll, go, we'll do like an in-run around the church, like a lot of parachurch groups do. Let's go around the church. We'll, we'll start having banquets at, at fancy hotels. People can come and have their cocktail and do their smoking and, and talk with one another, and we'll give them the message of Pentecostalism. The first one was held, was held in, in uh, Los Angeles, I believe, and, and uh, Oral Roberts spoke. 27 businessmen, he's only after very wealthy people. 27 businessmen showed up. 
and uh, to be taught the message of instant communication with God uh, through uh, Pentecostalism and, and the ability to speak in tongues and to re- how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. From that group came the Full Gospel Businessmen Association. So when you hear of that term, the Full Gospel Businessmen Association, you, you need to know that this was formed to spread Pentecostalism. These very wealthy people, as they grew, used their wealth to spread the gospel of Oral Roberts and those that were teaching in the healing movements and the Pentecostal movements. But things changed again on April 3rd, 1960. Uh, up until this point, uh, pretty much the whole, uh, issue, whole doctrine of Pentecostalism stayed within a particular circle of Pentecostals. But in 1960, Father Dennis Bennett from, the, from a large Episcopal church in Van Nuys, California, uh, announced to his congregation that he had spoken in tongues. Now, this is a, an Episcopal, a liberal, a very, very straight, straight, laced kind of person. And he said, uh, I have spoken in tongues. And people started listening to him. And that is the birthday of the charismatic movement. Pentecostalism goes to a group of denominations that teach Pentecostal doctrines, charismatics are in every denomination in the world and one of the fastest growing elements of that is actually in the Roman Catholic Church and so it it is pretty much everywhere. From that point on it's spread throughout the world. In 1980 a third wave as it's called of Pentecostalism hit America and the world through what is called the Vineyard Movement with John Wimber. Uh, John Wimber said uh, uh, tongue speaking was applicable but he was more into healing and, and voices from God and, and miracles and that type of thing power evangelism he called it and uh, the vineyard movement began to spread rapidly uh, but it, it kind of died out because when John Wimber himself died and uh, the vineyard movement still exists I think there's several hundred churches left in the country uh, I think we have one in Springfield but uh, given with all that it pretty much diminished greatly after John Wimber died. But in the, a little later on, another man, a friend of John Wimber's, both of them taught, teaching at Fuller Seminary at one point, uh, a guy named Peter Wagner, started what I call the fourth wave of Pentecostalism, or charismatic movement, and it's called the New Apostolic Re- Reformation, or for short, NAR. People call it that all the time. It teaches that all the sign gifts, all the gifted officers of the church, all the prophets, all the apostles have been restored to the church. Under this umbrella, pretty broad umbrella, uh, there are those who teach the, the Pentecost, uh, prosperity gospel, uh, the signs and wonders movements, the restoration of prophets and prophecies, the authoritative apostles who are on par with the Apostle Paul. Organization have sprung up all over the globe spreading this particular brand of teaching. Uh, some of the best known is Bethel out of Reading, California. Uh, it, it's banned Jesus culture has been extremely popular. Matter of fact, as I go through this quickly, you'll notice how music has played a, pay, a, a place, a big place, in spreading these doctrines, as it did originally in the 1960s uh, with, a, with the charismatic movement. Hillsong is another one. You've heard a lot about that if you've been watching the news, all the scandals, but there's a huge movement spread, starting in Australia and spreading around the world. IHOP, International House of Prayer out of Kansas City, the Charisma, Charisma Magazine, Joel Osteen, and I could go on for about half a day giving you the names. Uh, overall, all over South Africa, all over, uh, all over Africa, all over South America, uh, this is the brand of Christianity that's being spread. You often hear and read 
that uh, Christianity is spreading like wildfire in the southern hemisphere of the world where it's kind of died out in the northern. That's only partly true. In the southern hemisphere, Christianity is catching on, but it's this brand. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a biblical brand of Christianity for the most part. It is this, this widely er- errant teachings that has a false gospel and often no gospel whatsoever, but is wrapped around enthusiasm, music, tongues, so-called miracles, and so forth, and it's spreading all over the world rapidly. By far and away, this is the fastest moving, moving form of Christianity, whatever you want to call it. It's the largest form of Christianity in the glo- on the globe, and it's getting bigger by the moment. And, it's, and so we have to understand what is going on. So what do they teach? What do Pentecostals teach? Well, that's hard to pinpoint, especially with the charismatics, because uh, they have so many different groups they're in, uh, and, and so many groups do these things. But uh, as for tongues, which is our subject today, um, tongues are not strictly Christian. Tongues have been found in every form of religion in the world still to today. What unites charismatics is not a doctrine, but an experience. They have had similar enthusiasm and experiences and that's what unites them. If they have a doctrine, it's the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes with power and miracles and prophecies and healings and tongues, uh, these types of things, none of which can be supported by the New Testament scriptures, but is often used, uh, comes from an inconsistent look at the book of Acts. I'm going to have to, if you have my notes, you're going to have to see a big gap in what I'm going to go to next because I'm going to run out of time. But the... Um, I would say this, that the book of Acts is a history book, it's a transitional book, and only three times, even in the book of Acts, is tongues mentioned, and all three times for the same purpose, to authenticate the apostles as the spokesmen for God, and also to, to tell the Jews that judgment is coming for their crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we will look at that further later. But I want to go back to scriptures now, and go to 1 Corinthians 14 with me, and see some of the corrections Paul has Looking at, as we do this, we'll, we'll notice its purpose back in chapter 14, verse 20 to 22 that I just mentioned. But in the passage in front of us, Paul gives us four reasons why tongues is useless in the church. Now remember, he's correcting these people. And he gives them four reasons why tongues is useless in the church gathered like this. And then, verses 13 to 22, he gives us the reasons why it's useless in private devotions. So we will be looking at all that together in the days to come. Two corrections we'll look at today is, first of all, their tongues are not, under, not understandable. They're useless in the church because nobody understands them. 14.1, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now keep in context, we're, we're coming right out of chapter 13 on love. He didn't write the chapter on love because he was in a romantic mood. He is correcting these people for their self-centeredness and their self-love rather than loving one another. That's what that's about. And so he opens up chapter 14. He's not quite done with love. And he says, pursue love. Uh, the word pursue means to chase, to hunt, to run after. Folks, whatever you're chasing, whatever that is, that's what your love is. That's where your love is. And if you love people, you chase after people to show them the truth of, of the Lord's word. If you love Christ, you live your life for him. 
Paul, Paul likes this term. I, five different times he tells us to run after or run from something. Uh, I'm just, I, this would make a great topical sermon. Someday I ought to preach it, but I'm not going to. But I'm going to give this to you. You can look it up for your own edification. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, run from immorality. Flee immorality. In chapter 10, verse 14, he says, flee idol worship. In chapter 9, verse 25, he says, chase after the prize. In chapter 9, verse 26, run for the goal that God has set before you. And then in 14, 1, he says, pursue love. Five things. By the way, if you could could wrap your life around those five pursuits, you're not going to go very far away from the things that God would have you be and do. We, we, look, we look further, pursue love, yet desire spiritual gifts. So if you have a New American Standard Bible in front of you, as you should, uh, you'll, you'll see that the word gifts is not there in the, uh, in, uh, except in italics, which always means that it's not there in the Greek. Very important because a lot of translations don't recognize, don't, doesn't help you with that unless you know the Greek. And so it is not there, and that means it's not there. How about that? So the word here, and the word here is not charismata, spiritual gifts. The word is pneumatica, which means spirituals in the plural. So let's plug that in. Same thing he did, by the way, in chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spirituals, pneumaticas, now chapter 14, verse 1, be earnestly desire pneumaticas, or you could put instead of gifts, things. Desire spiritual things. Pursue love, which will, des- which will cause you to desire that which is important, the spiritual things in which you are re- you're connected spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's not particularly talking about gifts yet. He's talking about your life. And don't get wrapped up with the side products, the byproducts. Stay with the main thing, walking with Jesus Christ, the spirituals. Pursue love, desire spirituals. By the way, he's been saying all along that if you're thinking about why we've got to chase after certain gifts, that Paul's already shot that down. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. The Lord has distributed his gifts sovereignly as he wills. We're not called to pursue a new set of gifts. Uh, We are to pursue spirituals. And I believe that's what he's talking about. But he does say, he goes on to say, but especially that you may prophesy. I think he's saying here, as a church gathered, that's what he's talking about in chapter 14, mostly. As a church is gathered, what should the church treasure? It should treasure prophecy, not tongues. Why? Because prophecy is inspired uh, preaching. It is, it is re- revealed preaching. It is word straight from God that, that teaches and trains and instructs God's people. And that is what the church needs uh, here more than, than in tongues. So why prophecy? Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no, for one, no one understands, but he speaks mysteries in his spirit. Why not tongues, he says, in the church? Because nobody understands it. Could you imagine, if, if you go to the toddlers our church toddlers, and you sit down and watch the little kids talking to one another. Ever see little kids talk to each other? You, all, you almost think they know what they're saying. You know? What if, and I saw a comic strip like this years ago, what if kids actually had a secret language and they knew exactly what they were saying and they were talking about us and we didn't know it? 
What good would that be? Except for the babies. That you can't communicate to adults. We don't leave our kids talking baby talk for the rest of their life. We teach them how to communicate. And so he's saying here the same thing. Why, why come together to church and talk baby talk? Or un, un, unintelligible language talk. And nobody can understand you. What's the point of that? What's the purpose of that? Well, someone said, well, go on and read the rest of it, Gary. Would you? Okay. But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. They speak to God. In his spirit, he speaks mysteries. Well, okay. See, so somebody said, well, look, he's, he's praying to God. Oh, well, is he? Let me ask you a question. Anywhere in the Bible you can find where anybody's told to pray to God in secret languages that even you don't understand? You know, make, make your request known to God, Philippians 4 says. It doesn't say speak gibberish. Doesn't speak. God doesn't need your secrets. God doesn't need your mysteries. He doesn't need that. And if you don't understand what you're saying either, what value is that? It's, this is a correction. You think you're speaking in a language that is not there. And by the way, the King James heard us here of one of the most unfortunate translations in all the Bible is found in the King James in verses 2 and 4. It's unfortunate because once again they added a word not there and that word is unknown. It says that you speak in an unknown tongue. The word unknown, again, if you look at the, at the English translation, the King James, it's in italics. It's not there. It was invented. But, but, but from that point on, many in the Pentecostal movement said, look, there's two kinds of languages. There's known languages, and there's unknown languages, like heavenly languages or angelic languages, but that's not in the, in the text. And keep in mind also one more thing. The word tongues there is the Greek word for languages. It, is, it means language. Therefore, any time that biblical tongues are spoken, even at this point here, they were languages that were not known to the one who was speaking them. Now, there's no miracle, by the way, in speaking un, uh, unknown languages or gibberish or aesthetic speech. Anybody can do that. You, there's classes you can take to learn how to do that. We have people in this room who've taken those classes. And there's people in this room who can speak in tongues in the foyer after a while. Don't ask them. But they'll do it because they've been taught to do it. Okay, I could point to some people, but I, they're smiling too much. So I won't. But they don't know what they're saying. And neither does anybody else. And they're just, actually, they're saying nothing. The scripture speaks of this as languages. Now here's the miracle. You speak in a language you have never studied and never known. And you can speak it perfectly. Now that's a miracle. I tried that in French class in high school and college. And uh, it didn't fare so well with trying that. Don't, don't try that at home, right? Okay. So why not use tongues in the church? Because no one understands. Secondly, uh, it, builds, it builds nobody up. Verses 3 and 4. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. But the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. But no one, but one who prophesies edifies the church. You'll notice immediately the word edification, three, three times in two verses, and he picks up on that throughout the chapter. It means to build up. Prophecy, biblical preaching, inspired teaching, uh, that as the prophets could do, uh, it edifies, it builds up. It brings about exhortation, encouragement. It brings about consolation or comfort because it's a message from God. But tongues doesn't do that. Tongues doesn't do that. Uh, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. 
and you say, well, there you are. You can build yourself up. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapels, one of the early uh, charismatic church movements, said, look here. It's all right to use tongues to build yourself up because you can build up others. But Paul didn't say that it was all right to do that. I want you to look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Look what he really said. But each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that is gifts, for the common good. All gifts are given for the good of others, for the building up of others. Look at chapter 10, verse 24, in a different context, but it's applicable. 10:24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And so the gifts and the Christian life is not about me, it's about giving out, especially in the area of gifts. I'm not seeking my own edification, I'm seeking the edification of others. And so once again, going back to our passage, he is not saying that edifying yourself is a good thing. He is in, in the area of tongues, but he says that we should be edifying the church. So Paul is correcting these people once again in this context. So why was it this church was majoring on the one gift that, that didn't edify anybody? That, di that didn't edify them because they didn't know what they were saying. That didn't bless God because God doesn't need your, your incoherent language. That, that didn't bless the people around them because they didn't know what you were saying either. Why were they doing that? Because as we go through the chapter, we'll find they enjoyed the thrill. They enjoyed the pick-me-up. They enjoyed the ecstasy. And they also enjoyed being prominent. If somebody could claim they had a message in tongues from God, then that, that, put them, that set them up as somebody pretty special. And therefore, some of them, in their selfishness, as we've seen throughout the book, was looking to themselves instead of to God. That Paul did not approve this self-edification is proven in other verses. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what? For the edification of the church. Okay, not the edification of self, the edification of the church. Verse 26, at the very end, let all things be done for what? For edification. And all things be done to build up others, not to focus on self. Whenever we focus on self, whether it's, it's gifts, our life or whatever it is, it, whenever we focus on self, we're not focusing on what God wants us to do. The spiritual gifts coming together then are, are given to us to serve one another. I, one of the things I, I really like about Vacation Bible School here is see all the different gifts and all the different efforts and all the different talents coming together to serve Christ together. It's probably the most uh, consecrated time in our whole church where so many people have come at the same time to minister in so many capacities. And so as I'm, as I'm moving about, watching what everybody's doing, uh, I, I see people doing skits. I see people making uh, sets. I see people uh, teaching children of, uh, in all sorts of capacities, big groups and small groups. I, I see uh, people doing crafts. I see people out in the heat playing games with the kids. I see people, and this is the most spiritually gifted people in our church, the cookie ladies in the room who are, who are serving. And all this together, and we have leadership, we have administration, we have all these, all these different things coming together for what, what purpose? To build up one another in Christ. And that's exactly how gifts were meant to be lived out and why they were given. Let's not get sidetracked. Let's remember where we are, what God has given us. Let's not get lost along the way. I read a book on communication some time ago. 
And what's the guy said that uh, a pastor, I think he said, I'm a, I'm a bagpiper. I know how to play the bagpipes. Therefore, I'm often asked to go to ceremonies and funerals to play my bagpipes. He said on one occasion, he, he was asked to go to, uh, to play his bagpipes at a funeral where probably nobody would be there. This was a, basically a homeless man. He had no family, had no friends. But for whatever reason, the funeral director had compassion on him and asked this man to come to uh, a pauper's grave back in the backwoods of Kentucky. And so bring your bagpipes, play for him. Nobody else is hardly going to be there. So he did. But because the cemetery was out there in the, nestled in the woods somewhere, he could not find it. And he traveled all over. Finally, an hour late, he shows up at the cemetery and everybody else was gone except for the grave diggers. And they were eating lunch. And so he gets out of the car and, and brought his bagpipes and he begins to apologize for being so late. And, uh, and they just kind of looked at him. So he went over to the grave. He looked down. The vault was already sealed. Uh, the, the hole was still open, but the vault was sealed. And he took out his bagpipes and he, been to, he played his heart out. He played with everything in his being for this poor guy. And he, he started feeling compassion for this guy that nobody loved. And he played his heart out. When he got to Amazing Grace, the, you know, the, the best of all bagpipe songs, if there is a good bagpipe song, uh, he begins to play Amazing Grace, and he's playing it with the, the hall of his passion. He begins to cry. The, the, the guys who were dug the grave, they were all wrapped around him now, singing with him, crying like little babies. Heart, they didn't know the guy, but they're all crying. And, oh, this was just a heart-moving movement. When he was done, he packed up his bagpipes, went back to his car, and just as he started to get in the car, he heard the grave diggers behind him say this, man, I've never seen anything like that before. And I've been digging septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> At that point, the man realized he was still lost. Uh, let me just say this. Don't get lost on the way to living out for Jesus Christ. Get to the right place. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you now that we know the direction to go from your word that we can trust you for your communication to us. Lord, we thank you for these people that have come today. We hope this has been helpful. Uh, Lord, we pray for those that may not know Christ as their Savior. We would ask, Lord, that today you might enable each of us to look deep into our own hearts and know whether or not our sins have been forgiven as we've accepted your gift by faith alone. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.